You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. Hannah Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. Ed Ludlow, he's off today. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Apple races to tweak its smartwatch software ahead of a U.S. ban on its $17 billion business. Details ahead in a conversation with the CEO of Massimo, which argues the device infringes its patents. Meanwhile, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin rocket takes to the sky for the first time in 15 months, paving the way for people to start flying on New Shepard again. Full coverage ahead. Plus, we'll sit down with technology entrepreneur and investor Marcelo Clary as he returns to SoftBank's Open Opportunity Fund to support diverse founders. That conversation, so much more coming up this hour. But first, let's a quick check on these markets. As we've just been hearing from Alex and Guy, Nasdaq is on quite a roll. The Nasdaq 100 once again hitting that intraday record high. We're at up two-tenths of a percent. The 10-year yield actually pulling back. Look, still optimism there that the Federal Reserve is done on its rate hike and actually going to be seeing some rate cuts as soon as maybe even March next year. Some voices being put towards that today. We look at New York crude up more than 2%. This again, a geopolitical tension on issue with the Red Sea and worries that basically some of this traveling of oil is going to take that much longer if they are going to have to bypass that particular route. We look at what's happening in the world of crypto because the dollar's been falling away, but so too has Bitcoin. We're down by some seven tenths percent. Just still at that $42,300 level, we'll have a dig in conversation on ultimately what the ETF is lined up to. Will we get a spot Bitcoin ETF as soon as January as sanctioned by the SEC? Meanwhile, let's turn back to that Blue Origin return to flight after 15 long months. Joining us now, Space Capital founder and managing partner Chad Anderson, also the author of The Space Economy. And well, The Space Economy got the return of a key player. How important was this to go as well as it seemingly did? Yeah, I think, it, I mean, it, it seemed to go flawlessly and it's great to see, you know, it's um, after 15 months, that's a pretty extended period um, for any vehicle to be offline. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, there's some some, some regulatory checks that need to happen before a, a vehicle like this comes back online. But I also think that um, uh, Blue Origin, sort of in their culture and DNA since the beginning, is very methodical and very slow. And so they want to get everything right. Like slow is smooth and smooth is fast has been their motto. And they used to actually stamp tortoises on the vehicle after successful flights. And so it's great to see it coming, you know, coming back on on um, online. But mm. I think, you know, 
the company has big ambitions. They're going to need to step it up. And so, you know, they're making some moves to sort of help make that happen. And let's talk about those moves, because not only is there a proof point of well, the launch, the 24th, as it was, reusable rocket doing, rocket doing well, but ultimately a changing of the guard. Dave Limp goes from Amazon to become the helm of Blue Origin. And we hear from Jeff Bezos himself on certain podcasts saying we need to be more decisive. How are you going to see that become a reality? Yeah, it's great to see, you know, and I mean, um, uh, look, you've got so interesting to see the juxtaposition between SpaceX and Blue Origin. Both of the companies were founded in 2002. Both of them have similar ambitions and actually similar funding. Um, Bezos continues to invest heavily into Blue Origin with another you know, couple of billion dollars this year, which is bring, brings this total investment into the company we estimate to be somewhere around $10 billion which is actually slightly more than what SpaceX has raised. But if you look at the two companies and what they've achieved, you know, SpaceX is, is, um, has, dominates the launch market. They're launching almost 100 times this year. They're taking um, NASA astronauts to the space station, delivering cargo to the space station, launch, launching high-profile classified missions for the Department of Defense. And they're you know, in pole position to um, land NASA astronauts on the moon. Meanwhile, Blue Origin has New Shepard flying, and they have big aspirations and a lot of really interesting things that are in the works. But, you know, um, 20 years later, you'd like to see some of those things start to come online. It feels like Bezos is very confident that their larger orbital vehicle is going to come online next year. So next year should be pretty big for the company. To that end, I mean, we remind our viewers you are indeed through Space Angels, an investor in SpaceX. And ultimately, the business models are different. And there has been more of a focus on space tourism thus far coming from Blue Origin. But is there enough market share? Is there enough reward for this amount of players within the space department upon? Oh, sure. I mean, look, the 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 world runs on space technology. Um, GPS is the most visceral, sort of most personal example that you um, that you can give. It's the most successful space technology in existence. It's generated trillions of dollars in economic value and some of the largest venture outcomes we've ever seen. So the space economy and the opportunity here is much larger than just rockets and satellite hardware. But with you know with the launch today, and that's what we're talking about in launch. SpaceX makes it look really easy. That launch today was flawless, and it makes it look pretty easy. But of the 100-plus launch companies that have raised $27 billion over the last 10 years, there are only um, three that are operational, SpaceX, Rocket Lab, and um, uh, New Shepard, if you count it, is a suborbital vehicle. So there's actually only on, only two. So we'll see You know, if, if ULA, which is using Blue Origin's engines, comes online early next year. We'll see if New Glenn comes online next year, but we could use some competition here. Um, competition spurs um, lower costs and more entrance and more uh, innovation. And, you know, with only a couple of privately funded players, we could definitely use some more. Is the venture capital there to back such new competition? Is it an international set of competition that we need to see? Well, so we've been operating in space for decades, but it's only recently become a category for investment really on the heels of SpaceX. Um, going from basically no private market activity, investment or entrepreneurial activity, you know, 10 years ago, on the heels of SpaceX, we've now seen $280 billion invested into 1,800 unique space companies over the last 10 years. So um, there is a lot more activity um, uh, happening today, and most of that is coming from venture capital. So um, uh, three quarters of all of the rounds that have gone in that make up that 280 billion are from venture capital, and two thirds of the capital is coming from venture capital. So 
and a lot of that action is is happening in the U.S., um, a significant portion of it. But this is an international play. Geopolitics is playing into this in a major way. Um, governments around the world are starting to awaken to the importance of space technology, and they are prioritizing its protection, knowing that it gives us positioning, geospatial intelligence, and intelligence about the you know, movement of goods and activity on the, the Earth's surface. And also it's connecting us now through satellite connectivity, through initiatives like Starlink, um, helping to keep the Ukrainians connected, for example, um, but connecting the remote parts of the planet as well. So um, this is critical national infrastructure, not just for the U.S., but for many countries. And we're seeing um, increased activity across the globe. Whether it comes from Jeff Bezos, whether it comes from Amazon and Project Kuiper, whether it comes from SpaceX and indeed more broadly abroad as well. Chad Anderson, so good to catch up with you. Thank you so much as Space Capital and Space Angels. Meanwhile, let's shift gears a little bit and look at Alphabet right now because it's going to have to pay $700 million and alter its Google Play policies to settle claims that the App Store unlawfully dominates the Android mobile applications market. I'm pleased to say that Bloomberg's Leah Nyland joins us more on this antitrust case. And this was Attorneys General particularly putting forward on this behalf of the consumer, millions of them, ultimately. What are the policies that are going to have to change here, Leah? Yeah, so this was a case brought by 36 state attorneys general, um, but the settlement was signed by all 50, so this is going to apply across the country. So Google agreed to pay some money, but the bigger changes are ones to its Play Store. So now it's not going to uh, require companies like Samsung and Motorola, who make its phones, to have the Play Store be exclusively and the only app store available on phones. It's also going to allow developers to use alternative payments systems. So instead of just using Google Play on the phone, you might now be able to start using things like Square or Venmo or PayPal. Um, and they also will be allowed to tell consumers a little bit more about um, whether they can get cheaper options elsewhere. So, for example, they could say, hey, you know, if you agree to sign up for our subscription online instead of here through the app, we'll give you a discount, a $3 discount. And so, you know, they might have a link to go to their website where you can get a cheaper price. All of this begs the question, of course, post the Epic Games loss, and of course they said that they're going to be fighting that one, but ultimately this is questioning the business model, not just of Alphabet's Google, but also of Apple, and also weaves into a whole feeling that antitrust is just on fire right now. Your beat in particular, the <laughs> fact that we're seeing case after case being brought, M&A falling apart. Am I right to feel that it's up the ante at the moment? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing about antitrust is it often takes a long time. So the cases that we're talking about that have come to trial this year were actually really filed or started back in 2019, 2020. So it, it's taken a long time, but we're finally seeing some of the results of the antitrust enforcement that has been sort of brewing up to this point. And now with the Biden antitrust enforcers who've been taking an even more aggressive approach, that's the FTC and the Justice Department under Lena Khan and Jonathan Cantor, they've been challenging a lot more deals. Um, we had a story just earlier this week about how they um, challenged a record number of 50 deals um, last year, um, which is more than any since they started looking at deals b beforehand in the 1970s. Well, you put the context there for us, Leonine, and as these things take a long time, but they all do seem to be like buses when they all come at once. Bloomberg's Leonine has been busy. We thank you so much.
Opportunity Fund, a venture capital firm dedicated to funding black, Latino-founded technology companies. It's announced that Marcelo Claro is coming back, is returning to the company as a vice chairman and general partner. Joining us now is Marcelo and Paul Judge, Open Opportunity Fund chairman, who's managed to lure him back. And Paul, I'll start with you. Already Fund One, $100 million put to work on 75 black Latino tech companies. Can you just say how you've managed to make an impact? How have we already seen, what was it, 7X it's thus far? 7X it's so far. The, the companies, over 75% of them, have raised their follow-on rounds already. They're growing at 100% revenue year over year. All of them? On average, across the portfolio, wow. even in, in this environment. And so it just shows that even though minority founders have often overlooked, when they've given the chance, they, they overcome and they, they outperform. And Often it's felt if you can't see it, you can't be it. Well, here we see it. You know, a Latino founder, an operator, black operator, and indeed founder. People realizing that this can be done, but it's still so hard. Ultimately, Marcelo, why buy it? Why did SoftBank let you buy it back, ultimately? Because this is something I started when I was at SoftBank back in June 2020, when the whole Black Lives Matter was a, was a big problem. And it one day just bothered me to see so many people talk and say, you know, we stand behind the black community, but really nobody was doing anything. So I went to Mass and say, hey, why don't we, this is our business, we're a venture, cap, we are a venture capital firm, why don't we start a fund to just help black and Latino entrepreneurs? And, you know, in the, with Massa, we started this fund. I invited Paul, who were both Henry Crown Fellows, that's how we met, ah. and we launched it, and it has proven to be incredibly successful. And then I made an appeal to SoftBank saying, you know, I think the fund needs to return back to its roots, and I don't think there's a better duo than doing it than a Hispanic entrepreneur or Hispanic investor with Paul, who's probably one of the, black, one of the best black investors and operators. So we're ready to tackle those 75 companies, and we are already starting to race for fund number two, and mm -hmm. we're going to call on a lot of people who always say, you know, we're here to help, and uh, this is something that I'm incredibly passionate about. You know, I'm a, I'm a Hispanic founder, and when I started Brightstar, I struggled to raise capital, and it's just something that was very close to my heart, how hard was it to raise capital, and how my competitors who were white was so easy for them to raise capital. At the end, we ended up raising capital. Mm -hmm. So I just want to make sure it's easy for successful black and Latino entrepreneurs to have a fund that's solely dedicated to them. And Paul, I mean, some of the security-based companies that you founded, you're a three-time founder, you've done that alongside other people of color, and I'm sure come up against that reticence of sometimes getting people to allocate you the checks. I'm interested, therefore, when SoftBank is still going to be a, a key investor in Fund 2, but perhaps not a founding LP, who are the other institutions? And how galvanized they are they to still give money at this point? I think there's a lot of organizations that they know that this is the right thing to do. Uh, but what we've proven with Fund 1 is that it's, it's also the profitable thing to do. Mm -hmm. right, Fund 1 is, is outperforming, is delivering top quartile returns. And when you look at the portfolio, over 80% of the companies that we invest in are B2B software companies. And so half of those companies are areas where minority founders have a unique viewpoint, like education, finance, uh, workforce development, uh, healthcare. But then half of those companies are just they're solving some of the hardest problems in AI and cybersecurity. And so we see organizations, whether it be endowments or pension funds or institutional investors, uh, find a lot of interest in supporting us in Fund 2 and beyond. I think of Isusu, a founder we've interviewed plenty of times, trying to fix basically ultimately access to, to, to real estate and, and credit checking. When you're thinking about the founders you're going to back at the moment, where are you finding them, Marcelo? Because you're also someone who's so busy looking in Latin America for Latin American founders. Are you basing this mainly in America or? 
No, I've, I've been buying GP interest of a lot of different funds, you know, in Brazil, in, you know, you know Bicycle, which is our venture or growth equity fund dedicated to Latin America. I've done some in the U.S., Brassard Capital Partners, which is a private equity company, and so on. You know, I, I, like I said, in this new part of my life, I want to make sure that I'm backing successful people so I can pass on my capital, my experience, my contacts, and not necessarily operate myself. This is a little bit different because this is, you know, Opportunity Fund is really personal to me. Mm. And this is something that, like I said, I'm incredibly passionate of helping. I think black and Latino founders are as good as any other founders, but sometimes are not given the opportunity. So this and my Latin American founders are probably two of my favorite areas of interest now. This has become a politicized area, though. And you just think about the Fearless Fund over in Georgia at the moment, which because of the views in which the Supreme Court thinks about how money and indeed allocations to people getting to university and then allocations of money to diverse people. I'm interested as to whether you've had any political pushback from LPs wanting to get into a fund or whether you still feel that people are interested in basically the profits over it. No, I, I'm, I'm a huge believer and that's, you know, when I was, when I had my first company, Brightstar, I never used a Latino card because I hate having to tell people, give me a preferential treatment because I was Latino. I think that's wrong. You know, I do believe that we need to, we have a proven business model. I think the founders that we're backing are as good as any other founders and people should not invest with us because it's, hey, it's just let's help black and Latino. We don't want that. We want people to recognize the Opportunity Fund as a top quartile fund and we're going to choose some amazing founders, some amazing entrepreneurs who, I'll tell you, being a black or Latino entrepreneur, you know, you have to try sometimes twice as hard, but, you know, once, once you're there, you know, I think that we're as capable as anybody else. So that's what we want. We don't want people to just give us money because it feels good to, to back uh, black and Latinos. We want people to understand that there's a great business model here and that these founders are as good as anybody else. And you've got the growth thus far and some of the exits to prove it. We thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to have you in the studio from the Open Opportunity Fund, of course, Paul Judge there and Marcelo Clary. Meanwhile, coming up, we analyze the crypto market performed. Well, maybe it's had a bit of a run-up of late. Kavita Gupta is joining us, founder and general partner at Delta Blockchain Fund. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. for Talking Tech now. First up, reshuffling at Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing. Chairman Mark Liu will retire in 2024 and cede his role to C.C. Wei. While Wei keeps a low profile as CEO, he is said to be basically in the driving force behind TSMC's advanced packaging business and producing chips for Apple and NVIDIA. Meanwhile, Michael Novogratz, he's doubling down on his expectations for a Bitcoin ETF approval in January. Novogratz, of course, the CEO of Galaxy Digital Holdings, he's told CNBC he expects SEC approval before January 10th. Galaxy has partnered with Invesco on plans to launch a Bitcoin ETF, one of many. Meanwhile, let's continue to discuss the state of the crypto market. Kavita Gupta is with us, founder, general partner of Delta Blockchain Fund. And I have a feeling as we enter the holiday season, some of the conversations around the dinner table are a little bit easier at the moment with the run-up in Bitcoin. Bitcoin. I mean, how do you feel about January the 10th or at least some sort of date being viewed as the one where we get a spot Bitcoin ETF? Carolyn, it's time. This has been going on for too long and SEC has never given clarity of why not or why should. And I think with setting up a date, it's just really, it's just counting your days and walk into a new year with a new approval and having an institutional buy into the space, which should have been legitimized in US long time back. I'm very excited and believe me, I tweeted this and it was seriously what I'm going through that last year during this time, everybody was texting me and asking me, hey, are you doing okay? But you need for New Year's and this year all I'm hearing about is how to buy crypto for my boyfriend and for my dad so I think like this is going to be a little crazy New Year which may or may not be enjoyable for me. <laughs> then everyone gravitates towards Bitcoin but is that the, the, the crypto of choice at the moment is that the area that people will be galvanized by such an ETF or will it spill over and what about some of the projects that you've been analyzing? I think technology will continue to be the heart of this whole industry. Like altcoins itself, when I say altcoins, technology coins actually from different layer ones, different layer twos, projects have also fueled up really high. I mean, one of the major projects, which I'm a huge fan of, let's say Polygon, it really went down to around 50 cents or 48 cents when the whole SEC news came out directly or indirectly classifying it as a security. That has also jumped up to like 88, 90 cents points, right? So not just Bitcoin, but of course, uh, the whole uh, the whole position of SEC or the market that there's going to be a huge institution buy-in into the space also moves the other altcoin up. So we're gonna, we are seeing ETH really up and having a very good holding position at 2.2 from the $1,600 base point, $1,600 point where it has been lying. So of course, it's a whole market and also a lot of technology projects which has been coming up, like we are talking about Layerswap, we are talking about Airstack, bunch of those projects are also looking at the market with a huge adoption with these institutions. Talking of institutional play, we did hear from Michael Sonnenschein over at Grayscale about his optimism around zone conversion to an ETF. Just take a listen, Kavita. I think that the SEC should and does in fact want to create an even playing field. Um, and so we've publicly been advocates of the fact that when the commission is ready to give the requisite approvals for spot products to come to market, that it should be done all at once. The issuers who are operationally ready to launch their products should come out the gate all at once. 
So say they all come out the gate all at once in January. What sort of immediate institutional pickup do you think that actually will be, Kavita? Have you put numbers or, or thought to that when at the same time we are still hearing from the likes of Jamie Dimon who says, look, I would close it down if I was in power? I mean, you know, every time Jamie Dimon has taken a stage and said something negative about Bitcoin, the market has really picked up. So he's actually a good sign and good omen for us. So he can go on saying all these things. Uh, but looking at if one, two or all of them come out based on whatever the applications and Blackstone has made some changes, a lot of other places, a lot of other suppliers are making some changes. It's a multi-billion dollar going into a trillion dollar market, which we are looking into, right? But I feel like also the technology of custody associated with it, yeah. the technology of able to give it to individual clients to hold it, to have liquidity, that's also yes. important. Kavita, so great to catch up with you. Come back in January. Kavita Gupta, founder and general partner of Delta Blockchain Fund. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology and Caroline Hyde in New York. Let's get a quick check on these markets because while well, we're still rallying on to new highs on the Nasdaq 100, we're fading on Bitcoin though a little bit. 10-year yield gets a bid. This is we anticipate that actually we will see some Fed cuts as soon as maybe even March next year, that being echoed by another Fed member. We're looking at the Bitcoin off by 1.5%. Maybe there's some profit-taking at the moment. We know indeed ARK has been selling some of its grayscale Bitcoin trust shares as Bitcoin had been rallying up to about 43,000. Move on, have a look at some of the individual names that we're looking at because, well, there's some deals being made. NVIDIA are off on about 1.5%. Look, call that profit-taking as well, if you'd like. We're looking at a firm, they're really rallying hard. Walmart deepening that connection there by now, pay later. We're up more than 6%, so rocketing higher on further deepening of partnerships there. I'm looking at Illumina, though, up more than 5%. It was one of the best performers on the Nasdaq 100 today. This, as we see agitation, could we indeed be seeing Carl Icahn come in, try and once again be moving to make big impact at this business as they sell off their grail acquisition that ultimately was put off by regulators? Illumina on the upside, as many feel that actually this investor and an activist investor at that could lay bare some changes for the business. Meanwhile, we want to talk about other areas of change and perhaps some drama because on Christmas Day, you're no longer going to be able to buy perhaps some of Apple's latest smartwatch devices here in the US. Now, as the company battles on ongoing patent dispute. For more, Bloomberg's Mark German joins us now. And this is the culmination of a patent dispute that came out from October. And what is it? Is this posturing? Is this actually that you won't be able to buy via Apple itself? Yeah, this has been going on for quite a while. There was a uh, lengthy trial between Apple and Massimo in California. This is in relation to patents for blood oxygen saturation. Uh, Massimo has held patents for years on the technology used to non-invasively determine the amount of oxygen in your blood. Uh, they believe, and they sued Apple over this, that they violate those patents for their blood oxygen app uh, that launched in 2020 on the Series 6. And this is no joke. This is not posturing. The International Trade Commission, the ITC, ruled uh, that there's going to be an import injunction. That import injunction is scheduled to come into place on Christmas Day, December 25th. Uh, Apple has put all the measures in place to stop sales of the Ultra 2 and the Series 9, uh, which represent the vast, vast, vast majority of Apple Watch sales. These are their newest smartwatches. Uh, those sales will stop online on Thursday. And 
uh, by Christmas Eve on the 24th, it will stop in Apple's about 270 U.S. retail stores. So this is real. Uh, we are only a few days away from this happening. So I would say it's extraordinarily unlikely that anything changes. Uh, maybe there's a settlement or cross-licensing or a licensing agreement. Maybe the Biden White House steps into place in the next few days. But barring that, sales of the Apple Watch Ultra 2, sales of the Apple Watch Series 9, those will cease to happen through Apple's direct sales channels by Christmas. Mark Gurman, fascinating. Great analysis. Thank you for bringing it to us. And indeed, well, we can ask about whether there is anything likely to change in the next few days. As mentioned, it's a medical device maker. Massimo has accused Apple of copying patented technology for measuring blood oxygen levels that they used in their smartwatch. Joining us now, Joe Chiani is the founder and chairman and CEO of Massimo. And it is great to have some time with you, Joe. And Look, will anything, has Apple in any way turned to you, tried to be making any sort of, well, agreement, negotiate some sort of settlement here? No, no, they haven't. Ever since 2013, when they contacted me and said, we're the platinum of non-invasive monitoring, they want us to go in, meet with them, because they want to integrate our technology, we have not heard from them. Instead, they ended up recruiting 25 of my engineers, including our chief medical officer and CTO from a spin-off company. And uh, this is not an accidental infringement. This is a deliberate the taking of our intellectual property. You spend millions to take on Apple. What is this because of your business, because of what you think ultimately you could win out in terms of them being forced to pay you for the use of your technology or to settle? Or is this something bigger? Well, first of all, I'm glad the world can now see we're the true inventors and creators of this technology. Um, we want to actually let you know that by banning the Apple Watch with SPO2, really there's no issue because <clears throat> Apple's internal documents that we saw in court showed that they knew their product wasn't good enough to be used medically, and they didn't even seek FDA clearance because of that. Their own testing showed they got two measurements a day on 37% of the people, that's it. We get over 70,000 measurements a day on everyone. And they pushed that anyway, because as their email showed, they thought in the chaos of COVID, this is their quotation, they could get market share away from Fitbit. So no, why we sued them? Because this is our intellectual property. We have our own product. I'm showing here, and uh, we have been in pulse oximetry business for 35 years, not only now in the consumers, but hospitals. In fact, we just got FDA clearance for a product we call Stork, which is a baby monitor to help parents monitor their baby's pulse oximetry uh, when they're not next to them. Now, an Apple spokeswoman, Joe, has said that the company is working on submitting workarounds in the US to the customs agency, and that's, of course, in charge of actually approving changes to get a product back in the market. But do you think the product that you just showed us, your product, could take any market share here? Absolutely. We are focusing from hospital to home right now with this product, but there's a consumer version of that product that we're going to be introducing here shortly. This is the Freedom Watch that has all of our biosensing capability that we have in these chips that we put on the back of these watches. And with our distribution channel, which is about 20,000 locations, with the near recent acquisition we made of Sound United, which is the owners of Bowers and Wilkins, then in the Morans, we hope to pick uh, a good market share for people that really care about pulse oximetry. Mm. People 
with chronic illnesses. About a third of the population that buys these watches have chronic illnesses, and they will benefit from a serious, accurate product. Joe, ultimately, what could have been done to stop this? Obviously, Apple could have come to you and bought and li licensed the technology. But when, when ultimately big tech companies or any technology companies takes talent, takes employees, well, that's kind of just the way in which business is done. What do you think, if anything, you could have done to stop your CTO, your chief medical officer, from leaving? Well, first of all, uh, not every company does this. Apple is the biggest company, the most powerful company. They could be an example of how to do things right and do things well. They didn't have to steal our people. We could have worked with them. But secondly, you know, this whole ITC case, Apple could have not been even under their jurisdiction if they made these watches in the USA. The fact that they still haven't, I don't know, it says something about their relationship with China. This could have been averted for them. Now, ultimately, we're suing them in the California and Delaware courts for patent infringement. And if we went there, we'll get an injunction regardless where they manufactured. But this ITC case could have been averted by them by just making it here. And they've refused to do that. We make it here. We make all of our sensors in New Hampshire, hundreds of millions of LEDs and detectors. We bring them here to Irvine, and we do the final manufacturing. So why they can't make it here, I don't understand. Would you settle, Joe? The short answer is yes. Uh, Despite their leadership doing some of the things they've done to us, and not just Massimo, but other smaller companies that they Sherlock or they do efficient infringement to, for betterment of people and our mutual shareholders, I put out the olive branch on one of these news programs that I would work with them to improve their product, or they can even put these chips behind their product, uh, but they haven't called. Uh, it takes two to tango. And it takes the right price point. What sort of dollar amount would be the right from a fiduciary duty and responsibility perspective from your part, Joe? Well, they haven't even asked. We haven't. I mean, they don't what know. What would be your starting we... number? Say I'm Apple on the phone. <laughs> oh, come on. I'm not negotiating with you on TV. Uh, no, there needs to be an honest dialogue. There needs to be an apology. These guys have been caught with their hands in the cookie jar, and instead of being embarrassed and doing the right thing, they're blaming everybody and they're fighting everybody. You know, in 2012, when they decided to make the watch, they decided the most important feature was pulse ox. But they couldn't do it. So they created a project called Rover to see who can. They found 50 companies, and in their own internal documents, they said there are two standout companies, Massimo and Circle Corp, both run by Joe Chiani. They went to Tim Cook and said we should buy them just to get Joe, let alone all that technology, because they called me the Steve Jobs of the healthcare industry. Hmm. But Tim Cook said, no, you get the same result by smart recruiting. So what do they do? I was paying my people 90th percentile. It's not like I don't pay our people well. I believe in them. They began doubling their salaries and bonuses. Some of them, they gave millions of dollars in RSUs to get them. Some in un labeled buildings a couple of blocks from me for those who didn't want to move to Northern California. Yeah. This is not normal business. We will put that to Apple. Thus far, of course, Apple have said that they're looking for a workaround. Could they fix this with software? First of all, with software, I don't think that could work. Uh, it shouldn't because our patents are not about the software. It's about the hardware with the software. But 
they could do a lot of things differently. Maybe it's time they think different, or maybe they act different. What about the administration? Have they been in touch? Are they looking for different behavior? Well, I believe so. You know, the administration has been critical of the top four tech companies saying they're stepping on smaller rivals and they're going to try to defend that. So I don't expect the administration to step in here. And every time Apple contacts them, I guess by law they have to call us to get our response. So yes, we've been in contact with them and we don't think they will intervene. Um, I think their recent stunt to pull the products off the market a few days earlier than the ITC decided it should be pulled off the market. They're trying to get the public to force the Biden administration to do something they don't think they should do, but I don't think it's going to work. Joe Kiani, it's fascinating talking to you. Please, you're not going to negotiate with me on TV, but when or if you do indeed negotiate with Apple, you let us know, please. How much Mas for the watch? Is that what you want me to do? <laughs> Joe Kiani and Massimo, stay well. Thank you for your time today, the CEO there. Meanwhile, coming up, we're going to talk about the health of something else now, of venture capital. In 2024, PitchBook's got its outlook out. We'll break down the findings next with analyst Carl Stanford. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Financial data and research firm PitchBook, well, it's out with its 2024 venture capital outlook, and we want to break it down for you with the findings. Carl Stanford's here. He's lead U.S. venture capital research analyst at PitchBook. And, well, I mean, it hasn't been the prettiest of pictures for 2023. Are we expecting VC allocation of funds to pick up a little bit in 2024? Maybe a little bit, right? I don't think we're looking at 2024 as a, as a full rebound for venture. Uh, but certainly, fundraising is one area that a lot of people are really interested in. We looked at our distribution data and tried to model out the next four quarters. You know, we do see it to be relatively similar, maybe a little uptick in fundraising, but not incredibly strong, right? It's going to be well below the records of 2020 and 2021. Um, it's going to be well below the, the historical growth trend. 
But, you know, with that distribution data, there can always be a couple billion dollar funds that maybe uh, are raised and, and increase that top line figure to mm-hmm. you know, a more acceptable uh, level for the VC in, uh, market. We're looking at a chart of annual VC backed public listing values. So ultimately, like where the exits come from as well, Carl. And that's going to in any way feed better, do you think? Will we get some public exits? Will we therefore get some more interest in money being handed back to LPs and LPs wanting to recommit? <laughs> I think to expect it to be this uh, you know, record year anywhere near what we saw in 2021 is probably you know, kind of a fool's errand, right? But when you look at where the IPOs happened and what IPOs did happen this year, there were 39 that have been completed so far. More than half of those are in healthcare. Then you look at there's you know 720 unicorns in the U.S. There's a lot of money that's still stuck in the private markets, but we are entering a year with a little bit better economic signals than we did in 2023. Mm. Russell 2000 growth is up 12% last month. Price to sales ratios are expanding a little bit in, in the public markets, and I think we'll get to a spot where founders and companies are able to compromise on a price that works for them and, and get out into the public market. Um, yeah. That's what we see. It's not going to be a great year, but it should be better than this year. I mean, look, the NASA 100 is at a record high. A lot of that's to do with the Magnificent Seven, but I'm sure there's some AI stories that can be pitched next year. I'm interested in who, if anyone, is is committing to the world of VC. Are we seeing a, more, a typical LP coming in at the moment? Are you seeing different types of commitments coming from the institutions? Or indeed, are they going direct now? Are we cutting out a VC entirely and then putting allocations towards the startups themselves? Sure, allocation is not going to get, or two VCs is not going to get cut, right? But what we have seen over the past two years is is LPs try to find their balance. And now after the, you know, 2022 is the stock market shock uh, that really unbalanced our portfolios, wasn't allowing them to commit. Now we've seen last year kind of a rebalancing of the, of the broader market. And now they know where they sit and they can know where to expect inflation to be or interest rates and adjust their portfolio in that way. So we do expect there to be a little more interest in LPs commitment committing to funds, right? We had $32 billion funds in 2021. Those funds would likely be coming back and start fundraising, you know, this year, maybe late in the year. Um, So we do think that LPs will continue committing, not at an extreme pace and and very similar to what we see this year, but but a little uptick for VC. What about others that we start to see on, well, the investor list. When I look at the latest AI rounds, a lot of the time it's been NVIDIA. A lot of the time it's been Alphabet. It's been actually corporates. Is that something we're going to see in 2024 too? Yeah, well, AI is really interesting because all of those large corporates that you mentioned are now trying to be the lead for AI, right? And so you, like you mentioned, Microsoft, NVIDIA, they're very heavy into that sector. You know, corporates have declined, uh, their activity has declined a little bit this year, broadly speaking. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, there is still some, you know, outlook of a recession. They don't want to overcommit to these long-term capital bases. But those corporates, those large corporations that are sitting on a, a large stack of cash do have that money to put to work in startups. And we have seen that that is a really good place for that money to go. We will see if that continues. Carl Stanford, it's been great to have you throughout the year with your data from PitchBook. And we thank you for pushing us forward to 2024. Excited to have you on then.
Light Matter is a startup building computing products that use light in place of electricity, and it's raised additional financing amid the AI boom, pushing its valuation to a cool $1.2 billion. I'm pleased to say joining us now, Light Matter CEO Nick Harris. And the reason you are so in demand at the moment, or in this particular moment of generative AI, is that it's really costly, really energy inefficient to basically train a big AI large language model. You're thinking your work for years, seminal work, has been done on basically using the light as a science, as a technology, to be able to make it more efficient. Can you just strip down as how that happens? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, today, when you look at AI models like ChatGPT and the stuff that Google's doing with BARD and Project Gemini, these systems are built on 10,000 node, 60,000 node supercomputers. And the chips that comprise these massive supercomputers building the AI models are burning an enormous amount of energy. So what we're doing at Light Matter is we're actually figuring out how to scale to 100,000 nodes, how to drive the energy down. I mean, just to give you a reference to Today, computer chips have about the same energy density as a nuclear reactor. Mm. And between the time when I founded the company and today, uh, they've actually increased by about 5x the amount of power per package. It's a tough trajectory, and if we want to keep growing in the AI uh, space and getting bigger and better models, some fundamental new technologies are needed, and that's what we're doing at Light Matter. And you're therefore growing. What is it? Your headcount is up more than 50% since your last VC round, which was back in May 2023. How do you, is it about people? Is it about talent? And that's why you need the money? Or how else do you develop this technology? Right, so for this round, uh, I think for the first time uh, at Light Matter, we've had investors approach us. And the question was really, how fast could you go if you had effectively, you know, approximately unlimited funding. What, what would you do? And we looked at the headcount requirements, we looked at uh, our product pipeline, and we decided to take on the money to accelerate all of that. We're 150 people today, we'll be at around uh, 220 uh, by the end of 2024. And what we're doing is we're taking this money to accelerate our interconnect product passage, accelerate the development of that, get it into uh, data centers at the end of next year. And we're incredibly excited to, to get this whole thing kicked off. And you're going to start to see that you know, these supercomputers are based on photonics and using light to connect everything up. And it's going to be critical for the future. So this funding is enabling all of that and massive scale deployment of passage. Okay, so people needed on the R&D side, on the sales side, I'm sure, and you're getting it into the data centers. What's your own business model? How do you charge ultimately the customers that you're looking to? I'm thinking of the hyperscalers. Yeah, on the passage product side, we sell wafers. So uh, we have a semiconductor fab partner. Uh, those wafers ship from them. And we ultimately sell to the big semiconductor companies, companies like AMD, Intel, NVIDIA, and also the cloud service providers who are building their own silicon. You've got Google Cloud with the TPU, Amazon, AWS with Trainium, and so on. These are the kinds of companies that we partner with, and we sell those wafers to them. What they do is they take their GPUs and their different processor chips, and they scale them out on top of Passage. Passage is this chessboard that links all of the chips optically and allows you to scale up to an entire 300 millimeter uh, diameter wafer and build absolutely massive computing clusters. Um, so you can take arrays of these passages, these chessboards, and scale them out to up to 300,000 nodes is the kind of thing that we're working on today. 
same heat density as a nuclear reactor. Absolutely fascinating. Nick Harris, thanks for painting the picture, telling us where your technology is going over at Light Matter. Great to have some time with you. Meanwhile, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. You do not want to forget about our own podcast. You can get sped up on the terminal. You're also consuming it on Apple, on Spotify, on iHeart, wherever you get your content. Come repeat it with us. This is Bloomberg Technology. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.